you know, nothing ever works exactly like <laughs> like it's supposed to. You know, we, this is our twenty third episode of the show, and it seems like every time we set up, I've got to chase down a different little problem. I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, at least you got a show. So, oh yeah, yeah, everybody, looks, you know, it, it looks pretty fun. When I fun. when I was a, when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, David Letterman pretty regularly, and there was a time when everybody was was getting a new talk show on, you know, especially the explosion of cable. And, and you and you thought I could do that one day. Well, he said <laughs> he 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 said you know every you know that's he, he, at some point he said everybody's going to get their own show. Every person he was you know, it was kind of a it was kind of a bit, but but now with podcasting, pretty much everybody does have their own show. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My father and I agreed the other day, though, that it was surprising that uh, one of his children grew up to be a radio host as opposed to a TV host. Because he, th- he thinks you're too attractive for radio. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure he and I would agree that uh-huh. I'm not. <laughs> well, that's our first bit of follow-up. Um, you know, Ethan, we, sh- we start the show with follow-up um, because we like to be held accountable and we like to... Uh, you know, alert people, alert members of the oral argument community to important goings on. Okay. Um, and our first bit of follow up is that we were on this week in law. We had a big week last week. Huge week. We had uh, Dolly Lithwick as our guest, and uh, we were on um, this week in law uh, with Denise and Evan, who we should get on the show. Yeah, we should we should get them on the show at some point. Um, and 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 Ethan, the reason that that your comments reminded me of that is because we it was actually a video show. So it was us with headphones <laughs> staring into the screen. Well, here's the thing about this. So it, it, there's video. Uh, you can also download the audio. And I recommend to our listeners, please, you know, save yourself uh, some aggravation of looking at us and just download the audio. <laughs> but, the, but the weird thing is that uh, when you do a Skype video show like that, um, instead of seeing the other guests, you see yourself, you know, because they're, whatever they're putting onto their feed at that time is what you see. And mm-hmm. you see yourself slightly delayed, and so you're trying to look at the the camera, but it's hard to do without seeing yourself there, but slightly behind where you are speaking. I found it very and isn't there, weird. There's a smaller version in the corner of you that isn't delayed because it's your own computer processing. Oh, image. instead of them them coming back through, right? So yeah. it's, so the big one is you delayed. The small one is you not delayed. Yeah. And and frankly, neither version of me was appealing to me, so I would have preferred to see none of it. And most, and mostly, I didn't see any of it. I think this is all a long way of saying that um, part of my, part of my awkwardness <laughs> is due to the uh, uh, the discomfort of seeing myself. Um, you know, it, it's like seeing uh, the the moments which have already occurred, which are totally unsalvageable. You can't go back and get them again. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is, a, I mean, amusing, if only because I, maybe maybe I'm a lot more attractive than you guys, but I oh, tend, no doubt. To, I no tend doubt. to just stare at myself, you know, in that little corner, <laughs> thinking, all right, that's not so bad. Uh, <laughs> and, do, you, uh, do you flex, Ethan, in the corners? No, do you, I, don't, <laughs> I don't flex, but, you know, I, I adjust my, my facial tics. I, I try not to, you know, tug at my beard, um, you know, so I... I I sort of understand the fixation on yourself, but I have a, I have a, I guess I have a different relationship to my own image. It sounds like a much more positive and healthy one. 
<laughs> By the way, are we recording now? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and and you have a your beard is a more, is a is definitely a a sort of full handsome gentlemanly beard as opposed to a scraggly beard. So you're right to be proud of the beard. Well, for sure. I, I'm not. You know, I'm not actually sure about that. But, well, um, but maybe we could do that. We could discuss this further offline. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, uh, Ethan, so we do have one more bit of follow-up, but before we even get to that, um, this is, it, this is embarrassing to admit because, you know, we, you and I have spent some time together when you came down to Athens. We had a great time. Uh, that was, that was a good time. It, it was, you came down to give a talk and we ended up seeing like the REM farewell show. It wasn't, you know, we're, we're one or two members of REM were there, but it was local bands, I think, covering different REMs. We had a fantastic time. Now, was that fiduciary judging? Is that what the paper was that? I'm trying to remember because I think I saw this talk, but I can't recall it. Yes, that that was the talk I gave, but it was there was an extraordinary uh, uh, cover of country feedback um, <laughs> from REM, and that was really the thing that I think stood out for everybody uh, during <laughs> during my visit. <laughs> it certain certainly looms large in my memory. Yeah. Um. Uh. So so this is embarrassing because we've spent some time together, but I was sure. That your name, and I've, I think I've talked to, you know, our, our mutual friend Chris, uh, and I've, you know, you come up a lot um, in our conversations, and, and your name is Ethan Lieb, right? Yeah, that that's true. Okay, okay, so, because Joe had me worried, because Joe, what did you say? I said that I guessed that it was pronounced Lieb. I didn't assert for sure, and indeed, the last thing I said was the most important thing is how he pronounces it. Yeah, but I mean, if you were look, pronouncing a German word in English, you would say "lieb," not "leap." That that's true. Um, and uh, I've just dealt with this 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 problem in my life uh, throughout my academic career, <laughs> and uh, somehow I've managed. I just tell people that it's L E I B. We pronounce it "lieb," and you know you can do whatever you want. Um, I do occasionally check in with the Westlaw people to have them switch L I E B citations to the LEIB uh, citations, you know, just so that, uh, you know, I get my full due with Brian Leiter. But um, <laughs> but other than that, it hasn't been a major issue in my life. So two interesting things, or three interesting things about that. First of all, you, you mentioned the name Leiter, uh, which is pronounced consistent with my guess about how your name would be pronounced. It's Leiter, not Leader. Um, second, uh, Liebchen, which is a word people may have heard, a German word, uh, a diminutive sort of lovey, I guess would be the English translation. That's L-I-E-B. So that's, again, spelled the way people would expect your name to be spelled. And then the Westlaw thing sort of shows that people have that problem. So I feel thoroughly vindicated this is by all, all of this. This is all my way of saying you're right about my name and I'm wrong. Is that? Is <laughs> oh, that, no, you're, you <laughs> can't the conclusion be we've reached here? Not at all. You can't be wrong about your name. Uh, uh, that's uh, that's basically what I say, you know. Like this is how we do it, you know. And I and, uh, and I'm committed that, to that. Uh, yeah, and beyond that, you should, you know, if you want to fight me on my own name, like <laughs> I'm happy to happy to take that up with you. That's a different episode where we'll fight about people's names. But I, I, you know, I have to say, I, I, I give myself a pat on the back because I have um, pronounced your name correctly from the beginning. It never occurred to me that it would be pronounced Lieb. There's something about L E I B, which is just clearly Lieb. But maybe that's only because. My because first encounter with you was was uh, hearing your name pronounced by mutual friends uh, rather yeah. than seeing it in print. I don't know. Yeah, ma so ma why would you pronounce it differently? Yeah, but it also just live. I don't think that. It just doesn't even sound right to me. So, Joe. no, even this was I, – I, I wasn't arguing with you about your name. I was, I was hunting much larger game, which is uh, uh, 
Christian impugning my prudence and uh, my uh, experience, mm-hmm. and I won't have that. So look, we have this is a great segue uh, because you use the word prudence, and we're talking <laughs> about complicated pronunciations. Uh, I mean, oh, it right. seems like a beautiful segue. <laughs> it's a double segue. Yeah. I love it. Even even our guests are trying to get us on track. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we get it's hopeless, it is, but it is we, the summer. But you know, I do. Uh, you know, I want to get to writing the next uh, impossible to pronounce uh, uh, paper. We and we are going to talk today all about uh, now. Do you pronounce it regular prudence? Good, good. Uh, so I thought that's where we would begin. Um, yes. Well, you know, actually, there's a there's a great debate. Uh, uh, between my co-author and myself, so Nestor Davidson and and I, uh, you know, batted back and forth. You know, is it regal prudence or regla prudence? That's a fine distinction there. I don't know if, if Skype can pick up that subtlety. Um, but I, either one, we're we're basically allowing readers to go with with whatever's rolling off their tongue as they read it. And the truth is, we get a lot of feedback. Where, pe- where people have told us, look, I, I don't, I, it's really distracting because I don't know how to pronounce it. And every time the word comes up, I sit there struggling and I can't get past it. Um, so we're, we're a little bit uh, disappointed that, that the title has actually been as uh, difficult as, as it has been for readers. Uh, personally, I've, I've just, I actually had asked my, uh, my librarian as I was developing the idea, which is basically to bring the uh, domain of jurisprudence and legisprudence into the regulatory state to kind of come up with some, you know, tag name for what that would be. And administrudence sounded weird and didn't carry the the Latin through. And and so we found this old French word uh, that meant, you know, to rule or ruler uh, or rule or regulation. Um, And that seemed like the right concept and it and it sort of flowed with the you know from jurisprudence to legisprudence to regal prudence uh it has a certain kind of natural appeal uh and and an etymology that made sense but you know wh- whether a reader actually picks up on it and, and actually can uh you know relate to the to the term uh we, ha- we haven't had a lot of success with that but uh but but i, I hope with time people will get more comfortable and and, and see the tie uh, from this development from jurisprudence to legisprudence to regal prudence to sort of bring some of the main concerns of jurisprudence, main concerns of legisprudence into the workings and, and into the mechanics of the regulatory state. Yeah, so I, w- um, I want to talk because I want to get, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners. Uh, who, well, we have listeners who are who are kind of not law people at all, listeners who are lawyers, listeners who are law profs, listeners who are law students. And and so I want to, you know, start from the beginning, from the ground up, because I think the contribution that you guys make in this, first of all, the the kind of harmonic convergence between reading this piece and stuff I'm working on is is remarkable. So I, I really appreciated that. Uh, but I also think that the the problem on which you're focused is is both understandable to a lay audience um, if we kind of define our terms from the beginning, and helps to illuminate. The complexities of law in a way that will be, I think, helpful for people and in, in other um, who do other things. Uh, and so, it, just if we start on on what the problem is, um, I think most people understand that 
when when you say, well, what is law for most people? What which social activity are we identifying when we when we talk about law? A lot of people's minds are drawn towards courts, maybe even like law and order episodes or something. But uh, the kind of thing where there's a an allegation that a law was broken, we're in court and a judge renders a decision. Um, pushed a little bit, people will kind of expand that to say, well, of course, a statute is law. You know, a law passed by the legislature is a law. And yeah, so law has. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just so I would just pause for a moment there because it, it implicates something that I think has been going on in the law schools more generally. So that kind of conventional idea about what law is focused on what's going on in courts, well, I, I think is not just a product of sort of the popular media and things like law and order, but it also was reinforced in the first year curriculum for really from time immemorial for, for 150 years uh, of, of legal education, first-year law students were coming and, and starting their education in law and essentially being exposed uh, primarily and principally to cases and, and appellate cases uh, at that. And so, uh, I mean, it, one of the movements I think we're seeing, and this is, it's sort of cyclical because this isn't the first time, really since really the New Deal, it seems like that law schools have sort of gotten attuned to, hey, law is actually done elsewhere too. We ought to be exposing law students and people who are going to enter the legal profession to that reality, and we ought to adjust the first-year curriculum accordingly. Um, and, uh, and so I, am one of the things I was involved with when I was at Hastings and, and involved with here at Fordham now, uh, is kind of making sure first year law students get exposed to statutes and, and some, uh, of the regulatory state as well. Yeah. And I uh, teach a legislation regulation class here at, at, at Georgia, um, to first year students. It's an elective, but it fills that, you know, the goal is, is partly what you say that, um, the first year primarily has been and still is consumed with reading the decisions of judges pronouncing a verdict or a, a judgment in a particular case, whether it's civil or criminal. And and that can create um, what these days is is a misimpression, really, that most important law is is kind of what judges say. And even in, even in situations where um, law students are exposed to statutes, it's normally through judges interpreting statutes. Right. And uh, and those interpretations, because the theories of interpretation are so manifold, can often lead to the impression that, in fact, the statutes are, are not even really authoritative, right? That most of what passes for law is what judges kind of say. Um, and and, there, and it's, it's a much more complicated world than that, all that um, uh, although I still think, you know, the courtroom or, or the judges, whether the appellate level or the trial level or the Supreme Court, have a, a very special role in the system. And I think one of the things that your article points out is that there are lots of <laughs> there are lots of institutions within legal systems that have special roles. In fact, they all have kind of special roles, and we need to think harder about what those are. And so I was just about to expand it, um, you know, a second ago to, to, to where you went with it, which is that, uh, I don't know, when would you say this start in the middle of the 20th century, but, but really in law schools um, in the 80s and 90s, when more people turned to uh, a need to focus at least on legislative activity, um, that legislatures were an important source of law's content and not just a, a, a kind of a starting point for looking at judicial resolutions. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to date it. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, Bill Eskridge was extremely influential in making sure that this was a, a core component of legal education. But I mean, but you know, some of this extends back to, to, 
to, to Wisconsin. Some of this uh, goes back to the New Deal. I mean, and the, the New Deal suddenly people are taking notice that laws happening elsewhere. I saw <laughs> in some is that a dog? That's yeah, that's Darcy. Very, that's very upset by what I'm saying. Oh no, no, <laughs> she's, she's not upset. She she's, just is making her. It's Darcy, and she's a typical co-star. guest appearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, she don't, she, don't, know, don't be, she yeah. knows that we might be, you know, headed into the kind of no dogs in the park uh, kind of <laughs> uh, hypotheticals that's and what right. have you. Um, so, I, I, so the legal process movement is also kind of starting to think about different kinds of legal institutions and their different kinds of competencies. Some of it focused, again, on like the limited competency of the courts, but that's in in some measure a response to recognizing that there are other competent legal institutions that are supposed to be engaging in lawmaking. Um, right. And, 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 and I think the, the growth of the administrative state is happening – Really, you know, in, in leaps and bounds. Once you have, uh, once you have the New Deal, and you have a setup, a, 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 an entire uh, series of institutions that are that are suddenly being asked to make law. Well, and bef- before we get there, just focusing for a second on the legislature, because I think it tees up nicely the the more specific questions you ask about, or, or the enlarging that you do to get to the administrative state. Uh, you know, once you think, ah, legislatures are an important area to look when trying to design a legal system. It's not just what should courts decide; it's how should we design this whole system uh, to interoperate. And uh, so you might ask with legislatures, what are the right rules for composing them? What are the right rules for constraining them? Uh, how do they actually operate so that we can think about, if, if not rules, what are the norms under which, uh, legis- uh, under which legislators should um, uh, conduct themselves? Uh, what kinds of kind of statutory revolutions are appropriate to what extent does the principle of stare decisis apply even in legislatures? And wait, now that I think about it, there are different kinds of legislators. There are legislatures. There are city councils. There are congresses. There are state legislatures. There are various kinds of boards which which take votes and enact policy. And suddenly this whole system seems kind of very complicated. And we might ask, well, which of the principles that we think apply to the making of law in courts carry over to the rules that should govern how legislatures do their work and which are different and why. There are certainly different kinds of institutions asked to do different things. They have different sources of legitimacy within our system. And those different sources of legitimacy and different activities we ask them to do maybe should dictate that there should be different results. And indeed there are, you know. So most most uh, um, uh, legislatures are elected uh, directly by the people or perhaps by um, portions of the people. Uh, most judges are appointed, although importantly, not all. And I think you've also done some work on on when courts are uh, actually elected. We might want to approach them differently than than when they're not. Um, so I, I just wanted to, to pose those kinds of questions to motivate um, you know our listeners to think about law more broadly in terms of how we govern institutions, because that tees up exactly what you did in this article, which is to expand that kind of thinking, which had had already been done with respect to legislatures into the administrative state. Um, yeah, although, although I mean, in some measures, these 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 questions that you're asking and, and I think posing pretty pointedly uh, haven't fully been uh, addressed even within legislatures. So, so the prince, I mean, you you mentioned the principle of stare decisis. It's actually quite difficult to say um, it, 
really to say exhaustively how we ought to be treating a principle of stare decisis at the legislative level. I think on first, you know, sort of a first impression is, well, of course, in courts, we're supposed to follow higher courts and supposed to follow what we've done in the past because reliance interests are really important, et cetera. Um, you know, all the reasons we have uh, stare decisis as, part, as a kind of core component of the rule of law within courts. And then when we turn to legislatures, it's actually hard to say, again, on first impression, oh, yeah, we ought to have a principle of stare decisis. In fact, we think the whole point of having democratic legislatures is that they can change their minds so that we can change our policy, right? Um, and that, that we shouldn't be changing our policies in the courts if we have a new idea about how we ought to be governing ourselves. We have democratic elections. We install new legislators, and they vote new policies into place. And voting new policies into place needn't give any respect to the policies that came before. And indeed, the point of democratic elections is, is in fact, to change so that our policies track our preferences. Although, That's true. although so, of course, people do have a taste for continuity. So, oh no, I'm, the- yes, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying just a, as a kind of first impression. But quite right, as soon as you kind of press upon that logic, Right, we immediately start to see, well, wait a minute. Actually, people have reliance interests even on the policy side. People want continuity. People want to believe that they're you know, the same uh, political community that they were before and that it isn't actually so easy to, to change. And, then, and, then, and this is a kind of point that, that uh, Tushnet makes in, that, in, the, in a piece that I uh, identify in the Regal Prudence paper. Um, it's, a, it's a Notre Dame piece. And at first he says, look, of course, there's no place for stare decisis in legislatures. And then by the end of the paper, he says, well, wait a minute, that's not right. There are things we might call super statutes, statutes that have a hold on us that can't just be changed. Uh, yeah. and, and dimensions of the voting rights. I mean, we, you know, we've lived through recent uh, efforts to think about changing uh, 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 the Voting Rights Act, and and what you see is that actually we can't easily make changes. It's not there. There is a kind of starry decisis effect of a certain kind. Let me just break um, in just to say because maybe we got the cart before the horse. But for listeners who who got confused by just the term starry decisis, we're talking about the principle primarily in courts um, that you sh- that new decisions should be made consistent with old decisions, and that uh, you can't just. You know, courts should not just change their mind willy nilly, but should adhere to precedents already decided. And it's a complicated question about how and when courts should depart from prior precedent. But the principles from starry De- uh, of starry decisis is like a little bit of a of a magnet or an anchor that pulls courts back toward things already already decided. Uh, and so now, when you think about that in legislator legislature is exactly what you say that uh, um, you know that uh, uh, we have. One desire for continuity in the law generally, but also legislatures are supposed to be the agents of change because they bear the legitimacy of the people themselves. At least they're supposed to. Um, but I would, I, I would ask I, one thing before you ask. Yeah, I just ahead. want to complicate the legislative picture a little because there's, um, uh, there's you guys were talking about the substantive output of a legislature, uh, but of course there's also the process that governs its internal operation. And there it seems Congress and, and other legisl- legislatures are heavily reliant on precedent, avowedly reliant on it. You might even say proudly reliant on it. That right. uh, there are precedents and, of procedure right. uh, for their own, for the way they go about their business. So where yeah. do you put that in? Because uh, that's not their substantive output, but it's a critical predicate to their substantive output. It's because it's the way they operate. Yeah, and stuff I've written, I've referred to these as kind of ex ante versus ex post 
kind of constitutional principles governing the institution. The ex ante principles are the ones that govern kind of the institutional governance itself before it actually creates any output. Um, and, uh, and that's, and those are kind of, yeah, departing from those breeds a kind of a, a sense of illegitimacy, right? I mean, if the Senate has always done things a certain way and then it does things in a radically different way in order to achieve a result, the result itself is called into question, not just because of the result, but because of the departure from practices and producing that information, right? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, the probably the the thing your listeners are well, most familiar with is the whole debate surrounding you know getting rid of the filibuster. Exactly, this is yeah. something, of course, that's within the power of any uh, uh, Senate, right? It's just they could vote on whether to get rid of the the filibuster, but it's considered the nuclear option, right? That this would be somehow a massive departure from the way in which the institution is run. Um, and that's that's it's notable. Right? It suggests that the force of precedent is doing some of the work here. Um, and, and so I, in part, the point of the paper is to say, OK, well, it looks like precedent has some value and, and actually some importance in this institution that on first impression perhaps has no it doesn't seem like it, it should matter. And what we try to do is take that insight and move it into the executive, into the workings of the administrative state. And suggesting that there, too, you might say, look, a president elected into office is supposed to be making policy, is supposed to be issuing whatever executive orders he or she feels uh, that the the situation calls for, ought to be running the workings of the administrative state in the way he or she feels that he, he or she has a mandate from the people to do. And in fact, executive discretion is so central to how we think about the executive. Um, uh, and yet, and then the, the paper tries to push against that intuition and say, well, no, actually, it turns out precedent might matter there, too. Um, and, and you can see it popping up in a variety of different ways. The case study that the paper focuses on is this office uh, called the you know, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs or in short form OIRA. Uh, which you know is 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 a little esoteric, probably for the average reader. But ad, administrative law people at this point are you know it's, know it's about well known, OIRA. Yeah, it's yeah, well yeah. known. A law professor ran it uh, for for some time. Uh, uh, Cass Sunstein, who many people know, um, and now another law professor is in, uh, is in charge. Uh, well, Shalansky. I, I actually think OIRA. I think it's important enough to uh, that our listeners should kind of get some perspective on it. Um, and and maybe the place to start is you know what you. You cite Schoolhouse Rocks in your paper, um, and, and <laughs> yeah. that's going to be the starting point for a lot of people. Although everyone knows about the administrative state in broad outline, but the you know the idea is that Congress passes a statute and the president enforces the statute, or uh, or if not enforces, uh, executes the statute, and then courts will rule on it. That's the thumbnail sketch of the Schoolhouse Rocks view. But of course, you know most statutes, at least in modern times. Um, uh, ask certain portions of the executive to do certain things consistent with certain principles. or And sometimes those principles are broadly stated and sometimes narrowly stated. And those portions are kind of consolidated into agencies, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, uh, you know, the Commerce Department, what have you. And, and, so, we, and we've been talking about on prior episodes, we've talked about things like the FCC and net neutrality or EPA and climate change under the auspices of the Clean Air Act. Right. And we, we talk about these things because they, they really matter. It's the way problems get solved and dealt with in modern life. Yeah, because Congress passes a statute saying the EPA will come up with uh, will will uh, come up with a rule. Or sometimes they will say directly come up with a rule. Sometimes they use other language to say that they will ensure that 
you know, any new power plant, um, has as, you know, is, uh, is fitted with the best available control technology for a certain kind of air pollution, or maybe even vaguer than that. And then the details of that and exactly what private parties have to do to comply with that law is kind of up to a further layer of interpretation and specification by the agency. Um, And these are administrative rules. And so the law that individual people feel is, is very often not the statute itself, but the statute refracted through the agency in the form of a rule, which is published. And uh, OIRA is, um, is a, is an office within the White House, but within the Office of Management and Budget, um, uh, which is meant to serve kind of a coordinating function among the agencies. Um, because, you know, once you realize that most of these statutes are addressed to agencies, you start to realize that a lot of the power in modern society rests in agencies, which have some degree of discretion over how to enforce or enact the law. Uh, and so you may say, well, what's the use in, in electing a president other than appointing the heads of agencies? And that indeed has been kind of a, um, what's the right word? It's kind of a push and pull between the president and agencies in terms of, you know, wanting to enact his or her favorite favored policies. You know, you enact, you, you elect a new president and, and you want that president to have some policy authority. Uh, uh, and, and, and is there, you know, to what extent can they actually do that follow through on to what extent is the president accountable for uh the actions of the agencies well OIRA is meant to serve some kind of centralizing role um and and i don't want to get further into it than that without into without talking to ethan because that starts to get into uh your theory of OIRA and what it's meant to do and how your theory applies to that particular body but uh so the point is you know within the white house or even within within the agencies when they make decisions about um uh, so what OIRA does, you know, in, 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 uh, to be more specific about it, cause I've been kind of general is to review rules, uh, proposed by agencies, uh, and sometimes with more scrutiny than others, depending on how important the rule is, uh, ensure that a cost benefit balance has been done and sometimes send letters back to the agency saying this rule is not good enough. Uh, there's a problem, you know, that you, you haven't done a good enough cost benefit analysis or you haven't complied with one of the other steps Congress has required before rulemaking. can also prompt the agency, right? I mean, an yep, agency yes. might not be considering a rule, but the, but OIRA could prompt it to consider a rule. Right. And OIRA, again, is an office within the White House. So this is the White House being able to yeah. exert some force on agencies, either in, uh, uh, in shaping rules or preventing rules or in encouraging rules. And so what your paper... I think it's a great case study for your theory, Ethan, because what you're wondering is, well, is what's going on in OIRA, that clearly is a kind of law because they're doing things which ultimately have the effect of coercing private individuals, or at least setting up the terms of coercion of private individuals. Um, And and yet, what are the principles there? Yeah, I I should say, no, we've gotten a little bit of pushback on that point because... this goes back to what we started with, with what is law? Does law apply against private parties or, you know, or the law that applies against public officials? Is that somehow different? Uh, I mean, my own view is a law that applies against public officials is still law. Uh, indeed, the Constitution is by and large, the, the, the subjects of the Constitution by and large uh, focus on state actors. Um, and so I, I, I'm not sure that that's, an, that's a, a central distinction to figure out what counts as law and what doesn't. Um, but I mean, I think what, what's important to highlight is that what OIRA is doing, although often uh, y- 
the language that Cass Sunstein will use in describing what it was he was doing in that office for several years was just advising or consulting or coordinating that all of that or uh, engaging in dispute resolution, right? That there's some, some people have the vision of OIRA as what's really going on is, you know, EPA is saying it's got some authority to do X, Y, and Z. Some other agency is saying, no, it has the authority or HHS is fighting with the FDA about who's got authority on something. Um, and then OIRA can come in there and d- resolve the dispute as the president prefers. Um, and that, that that's, from a, the perspective of Cass Sunstein, not really law, that what's going on there is negotiated solutions. No, that is some of what they do, though, right? No doubt, no doubt. The, the interagency that, sort of interagency, yeah. either cop on the beat or arbitrator, however you think about the problem yeah, no, being resolved. no doubt. That is part of what they do, just as part of what they do is enforce a vision of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, again, the cost-benefit analysis that the president prefers or, or that Cass Sunstein prefers, as the case may be. Um, <laughs> now, the, but I, what we're trying to highlight in, in the paper is not just those dimensions of what OIRA is doing, but that it is actually also issuing kind of substantive legal decisions about what a statute means. Um, it, it can send back a, a rule back to an agency and say, sorry, we're not going to let this rule go through. Now, whether they have the actual technical authority to, to stop a rule is not the point. The point is they have the de facto authority to, to stop it. That is, we, we have yet to hear a case of an agency promulgating a rule without the kind of imprimatur of OIRA. OIRA saying no, and they say, well, who the hell is OIRA? We're gonna, we think the statute gives the EPA the authority, and so we're going to pass this rule irrespective of what OIRA wants. So that, that hasn't happened. That kind of uh, you know, this head-to-head combat between the agency and OIRA, you know, there's stuff that goes on on uh, heated phone calls, but it is, uh, we haven't heard of, a, of an actual rule that's been promulgated, passed, published, applied without OIRA uh, essentially signing on to it. So there's a de facto authority there. And the de facto authority seems to not only be to enforce how to do uh, cost-benefit analysis, which is controversial unto itself, um, but that's uh, much has been written about that. Um, but they make decisions. I mean, if you well, one of the things we did was we, wor- we, we read through a repository that's available online um, where OIRA basically uh, sends rules back. And they issue these what are called return letters. This is a a rule comes up from an agency and the OIRA says, sorry, we think you didn't consider something. We think this is inappropriate for the following reasons. And we're going to explain to you, uh, you the agency, usually the letter is from the administrator of OIRA and the the recipient is the the, the agency or the the agency head or the sub-agency head. this is what we expect you to do or what we want you to do, what we think you ought to do. And so one of the things we learned later was that sometimes they even send back like red lines of, uh, uh, of <laughs> rules, um, which we only saw sort of later. And it's somewhat hard to see what, from their red lines what exactly is going on because they're, they're kind of marked up documents that are available to – but it, they, from an outsider who's just looking at it without knowing a lot about the substance of the rule, without knowing the history of the rule, would have a hard time trying to figure out exactly what's going on there. So what we, what we looked at was this repository. Now, the repository is populated by and large – uh, with letters from uh, uh, the Bush 2 administration. For whatever reason, but, um, uh, John Graham 
uh, was much more invested in this repository than Cass Sunstein was. So Cass Sunstein has one letter in that repository, and it's a very famous back and forth about um, uh, uh, it's a, a climate change issue and um, um, a uh, greenhouse gas emission uh, rule that the EPA wanted to um, wanted to issue. But the but the more the, the most of the repository. Uh, is from a different administration, and it's very it's very interesting to read. And I, we think most people haven't just sat there and read the repository at start to finish. Um, and it's just it doesn't make for easy reading. But what you see when you do it, and, and this was I think one of the one of the most interesting things we found was just that what Oira's um, you know quote advising on, and frankly making decisions on um, a wide wide range of legal matters, not just. Uh, whether they comply with some very small technical uh, feature of a statute, which again, if you read Cass Sunstein's, you know, myths and realities about what goes on at OIRA, a recent paper he wrote in the Harvard Law Review, you would think everything that OIRA does is just technical. And he uses the word technical a, tre- a tremendous number of times. And, and I think it's to kind of, you know, make it all seem like it's just a bunch of, uh, you know, economists sitting around doing technical things that you lay people wouldn't understand, so you can't criticize. Right. Um, and, right and this is one, one story about what's going on in the administrative state and why law people don't need to worry about it so much because it's just technical. You, you don't worry your little heads about this. This is, you know, no, you need no a, value choices. No, you, value yeah, choices, you need a yeah. PhD in economics to understand what we're doing here. <laughs> so uh, we're not interested in your views. And, and there's a there's that feeling of that in the in Cass Sunstein's recent paper um, mm-hmm. on the subject. And, and our and, and but what we saw was actually the that OIRA was taking positions on. Um, international treaties. It was taking positions on uh, trade obligations that the U.S. has with other countries. It was uh, making statements about uh, federalism concerns that the agency needed to address. Uh, and and so what we saw was actually a, a range of legal uh, 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 concerns that OIRA was bringing to the agency, and not just bringing to it, "Hey, you ought to think about this," because. From a from a practical standpoint, what OIRA says becomes the law, and so we thought, well, if that's true, you know, is there legal reasoning going on within OIRA? Which is to say, if OIRA's position is federalism demands X, you know, federalism demands that this statute may not be implemented in this way, right? Does it have to take that position the next time uh, that question comes before it? Does it have to reason by precedent? Can, can going, I try to frame what you – tell me what I've got wrong about your framing if I have anything uh, wrong about the, the the basic question stated as simply as I, as I can make it. And, and that is given your d- description of what goes on in that office uh, – uh, and let's just focus on that office for right now. Uh, they are engaged in a kind of lawmaking. They're producing information which has legal salience uh, for the legal system. Uh, given that they're doing that, uh, what is uh, an, a, a correct description of the secondary rules that that govern OIRA in the production of that information, whereby secondary rules would mean the rules that govern the production of that information, if any? Um, and and secondly, what sh- it, it, regardless of what the rules are now, what should the rules be uh, that govern OIRA in the production of legal, legally salient information? So it's kind of a descriptive and, and normative question about you know, if we think of OIRA kind of like the legislature, kind of like courts is just another institution involved in the production of information, what should be the rules that govern it? 
Uh, we know what the rules are for courts, more or less, although we're still talking about it. Uh, what are the rules for le- we know what those are for the legislature, more or less, although we're still talking about it. You know, the elections, appointment, uh, various procedures for producing information. Uh, OIRA is is interesting because it's understudied as to you know what we know that the president has some role or, or the head of OMB has some role in staffing that group. Um, but are there um, principles which govern? Uh, the production of that information. And one such principle you might look at is, well, what does stare decisis look like, if anything, uh, within OIRA? And that seems to be one of the central questions that you take up, maybe more as an example of your uh, approach, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and I think in the end, I mean, we probably started thinking, yeah, let's like say something really counterintuitive, like stare decisis has a role in uh, adjudication at OIRA. And, uh, you know, it and then we backed off of that in a variety of different ways. On, on the one hand, I, it's not really clear that what's going on at OIRA is adjudication kind of properly conceived. We, we end up calling it quasi-adjudication, so we, we don't really think it's a, a adjudication quite. Um, and also, I think in the end, our, fi- you know, our final statement is something a, a lot more boring than stare decisis definitely has a role. It's that you know, stare decisis is one value among many that OIRA needs to think about and, and consider – in its own internal operations. I mean, part of, we spoke to some OIRA, uh, kind of former OIRA officials on background. And I mean, and it doesn't make it into the paper because it was not uh, IRB cleared and we didn't want to, uh, if you speak to actual elected officials, that has a kind of uh, IRB exemption, institutional review board exemption. Um, but if you start just talking to people who used to be in government, but who are now in private practice of that, that, that actually, uh, there are research protocols that, require that that be done in a careful way and be pre-cleared. And so we decided we didn't really want to go down that road. Um, but on background, we just, you know, kind of talked to some friends and tried to get a feel for whether what we were saying was, you know, sort of off the wall. And we, we heard stories that were very consistent with, with what we were describing, that in fact, you know, there are these, there are, you know, uh, uh, field desks, right? so that the person who's doing most of the communication with uh, uh, the EPA is not the administrator, Cass Sunstein or Howard Shalansky. It's there's somebody on a desk that's like the guy who generally or the woman who generally deals with the EPA people. Um, and over time, they develop a working relationship and they, you know, there are ways things are handled. We actually heard a story about uh, some new person put on a desk after many years and suddenly like they wanted to do things differently. Right. And actually, somebody had to intervene and say, well, actually, you know, we do things a certain way here. And then, right. now some of this is just like, you know, the way bureaucracies function. Right. So uh, from a kind of sociological standpoint, most uh, uh, institutions work in particular ways where precedent matters. I mean, you know, you, you start working at a new law school and you think you can say certain things in a faculty meeting. But then you're t- so the, the vice dean pulls you aside and says, oh, actually, you know, we do things differently here. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, you may have, that's that may be the way it was done at Hastings, little man. But you know, we. Uh, but uh, anyway, I mean, the point is, is that you know, in, in what sense is this a feature of uh, institutions and organizations uh, versus what sense is this really like a legal norm? And I and I think we struggle with that. It's not, and and I don't think the paper teases that out uh, carefully enough. Um, but but I think that one of the things we wanted to highlight is if what's going on at OIRA is legal. That is, they are lawmaking. They are articulating the executive's vision of what the law is. 
okay? Um, and, and actually, most of this is unreviewable. I mean, part of why we thought OIRA was an interesting case study was, uh, unlike the administrative agencies, where, look, a lot of this stuff is also, if Regal Prudence has purchase, it's going to have purchase within the administrative agencies as well. But the, the, the confounding factor within the administrative agencies is the administrative agencies are by and large subject to judicial review. Right. So the, the Administrative Procedure Act uh, it already creates a layer of process by which they have to function. Right. And so uh, and then courts are routinely reviewing rules and courts are routinely um, uh, articulating principles yeah, so, for I mean, how agencies need to be engaging in their own lawmaking. This is right. not it is not controversial nowadays to say the administrative state is making law. It's controversial to say OIRA is. Yeah. So uh, if I'm so, a regulated entity like, you know, a, a, um, an, an industry, you know, an industrial actor or some kind of company and I'm regulated by a rule made by, you know, EPA or some other agency, um, there's a well-worn path for me to challenge that uh, both before the agency and then in court. Um, and uh, people understand that the agency has made law that I'm able to challenge it in a certain way. And uh, and and yet there are uh, when the executive acts directly through the president, that's a much more difficult. You know, there's a much more difficult path, if any. And right now, it seems maybe there's none. Although, I, you know, I do wonder if there's a way that OIRA's interaction with an agency could become um, the subject of a legal challenge. Um, yeah, uh, we're waiting for it, it but yeah. it, but I think, but it is notable, right? That the that OIRA has been around for some time. I mean, right? So it's already in operation in, in a meaningful way in the Reagan administration, and we have yet to see a real like legal challenge before a court about what OIRA does. I mean, we're starting, I think, because the Academy has focused a little bit more attention on OIRA in recent. Years, I think we're seeing more interest in you know, using OIRA. I mean, I think Kathy Sharkey has a piece is sort of utilizing, you know, if something has been OIRA approved in a particular way, you know, that maybe it ought to get some more deference in a court. But it, we're not seeing, you know, courts engaging what's going on at OIRA. And, and to, to me, that, that's why it makes such a neat case study because the, the confusion about what regal prudence could be, I think so administrative law people who read the paper, um, and we kind of anticipated this this sort of reaction, but the, the administrative law people would think something like, well, what are you guys talking about? Principles of stare decisis, principles of reason giving. We Administrative law people have been talking about this for generations. This is what courts are doing when they're reviewing uh, uh, administ- administrative agency decisions. Of course, we would say, right? But that, and but that's why you have a jurisprudence of the administrative state, which is something a little different than regal prudence. I think what we're trying to identify in, in regal prudence is what the actors themselves within the executive branch would think about the law that they're making, not with reference to what a court would say. So if you go back to some of the foundational statements about legisprudence in, the, in Julius Cohen's work, what you see is we want to see what legislators are doing and thinking, not in anticipation of litigation, but how they think of the law they're making and how they think about uh, legal principles that ought to be articulated through the work that they do. Right, so, I mean, I, I so if it go, so this goes back to kind of uh, Lon Fuller in a way, it's it's yeah. it's asking the the membership of. OIRA, which is hard to do because they're not all lawyers. In fact, most of them aren't, right? Most of them are just PhDs in, in some field or other. They they may not even be kind of self-aware that they're making law, 
Um, right, just as the State Department may not really think it's making law so much as like engaging in in foreign policy. Uh, but if you say, well, you know, you're actually involved in a legal system making things that uh, uh, making co- coercive uh, commands that that others have to follow, you ought to think about some of the Falarian commitments to rule of law. Right, like you ought to be thinking about how the rule of law functions. How should you publicize what you're doing? Um, you know, is it, are there contradictions in what you're in what you're doing? Is what you're doing unstable? Is there a divergence between the way in which you're sort of behaving in a in a regulatory or rules based capacity and the adjudications that you're uh, uh, that, that you're dealing with, right? So, I, I, and and th- those kinds of concerns, I think, just haven't really been brought in the same way. Yeah, let me let me say something about your method that as I see it and see if you know you can tell me if I've got this right but I think it's you know I I think we understand the question um you know what are the rules that should govern um and what what are the principles that either do or should govern the agency and uh, or the uh, the office in producing this information and maybe other offices and 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 the method you use that as I see it is to um, say, okay, well, what we need is a more finely grained understanding of the kinds of activities this particular institution is doing, right? So it's it's not exactly a legislature. It's not the president, him or herself, and it's not a court. Um, and so you kind of pick up on, you know, language used, you know, elsewhere uh, in, in legal analysis. And you say, well, it's kind of quasi, it's either maybe quasi-adjudicative, quasi-enforcing, quasi-legislative. In other words, there, there are a whole bunch of different categories, and maybe there's more of a spectrum than than saying that, you know, every institution is a midpoint between an enforcing agency and a deciding agency or something like that. So, you know, the examples that, that I go to are things like city councils or historic preservation commissions or various state agencies. Um, so, you know, members of city councils are oftentimes not lawyers. Um, they are clearly engaged in, in lawmaking. You know, they make ordinances. Um, but, you know, as Carol Rose has written, they they wear multiple hats because sometimes they adjudicate. Sometimes they're passing on a single landowner's uh, um, uh, ability to use his or her land. Sometimes they're passing on citywide policies, which are more um, about vision than about actual coercive application. Um, these are very different roles, and yet we have this, you know, single individuals in those roles. So coming up with a, a rich kind of framework to understand the constraints that in fact do and the constraints that should apply to those exercises of power becomes difficult because they're doing so many different things. Um, you know, OIRA is interesting because it's, it is, it is kind of doing different things, isn't it? It's passing on rules and yet trying to uh, subtly perhaps assert a presidential vision for how to interpret these statutes, which may be different than the agency's interpretation. Uh, they are, you know, it's composed of experts, but not necessarily legal experts, although there might be some legal experts in the office. Um, and, and so, as I understand your method, it is to kind of look at the activities of the institution itself and then to ask, you know, which of the various kinds of secondary rules that are out there, rules that look to continuity with precedent, rules which look to expert decision-making, rules which look to democratic legitimacy, rules which look to transparency, which of those should be imported and placed on top of this institution and to what degree? Um that's how I see the paper kind of cashing out, right? It's looking at OIRA as a case study in an institution that is difficult to describe along these traditional dimensions, and then uh, trying to figure out, given its kind of multifaceted nature, 
which of these, uh, you know, generic principles of institutional constraint should we apply to this uh, particular office? Do I have that yeah, about I, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things we were we we liked we enjoyed highlighting was that sort of OIRA has shifted in the way in which it conceives of its role through different administrations, and that may call for different kinds of uh, 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 f- focuses or foci on. Uh, the values that they ought to be promoting uh, in the activity. So to, to give an example that we, we, we talked about a little bit earlier, in but the Bush 2 administration, uh, Graham was very active uh, in quasi-adjudication, which is to say there were a bunch of return letters. I mean, really, the most of the repository, which is available online, which still exists today, but just isn't being populated in the same way because the office has changed a little bit the way it functions and did so under... Cass Sunstein, but he used to be involved in quasi-adjudications. Now, when you're doing adjudication, adjudication is the most kind of court-like thing you can be doing. Right? And so um, one might say, and precisely, though, if that's what OIRA is going to do, then when it issues a return letter, that return letter is information for other agencies about what OIRA is likely to do within its uh, domain of regulatory review. Yeah, and, and again, if, the re- and again, the return letter is just a letter back to the agency saying, "Try again. This this regulation is not good enough for whatever reason." Yeah, and and I mean, Nestor and I are not. I don't think we're overwhelmed by the specificity of these letters, but I think what we're trying to highlight is they ought to be a little bit more specific. They ought to be give clear information to the. Now, a lot of this is done informally, no doubt. I'm sure OIRA is in constant communication with the agency head and is saying, "Look, here's what we're really talking about," and the letter is a bare bones articulation of that. And I mean, you know, that's fine to some extent, but it. But I, I think that given that the, the quasi adjudicative nature of these return letters, it would be appropriate, it would seem to us, for there to be more, a little bit more specificity so that other agencies have notice about what the hell's going on in regulatory review. Part of why we have stare decisis is for efficiency. It's not efficient for the adjudications to go on and on. I mean, and, and IRA does not abide by its it, the time limitations that it's supposed to. It's routinely delaying things. Um, and it's it's got a hard job, uh, you know. I, I don't think they're I don't think those people are sitting around uh, doing nothing all day. I think they they work quite hard, but it's it, it seems incumbent upon them to at least, if they want to operate more efficiently, be giving more information to uh, the rest of the administrative state about what's going on uh, in those letters, so that others uh, can uh, can act appropriately in in future uh, rulemaking efforts. So that's it. That's on the quasi adjudication side. What Sunstein started doing, and and this is reflected in uh, the reality that under Sunstein there is literally one letter in the repository from Sunstein. Right? There's, there are not a lot of return letters. Uh, Sunstein is not actually returning, but he a- is doing something else, uh, which a prior uh, OIRA uh, uh, administrators didn't do quite as much, which is he would issue kind of broadly worded. Um, what looked like rulemaking to us. So we, we call it, you know, quasi rulemaking. Um, and the idea was the, he would um, promulgate these memos that say agencies ought to be thinking about, say, disclosure right, or simplifying regulation. And eff- essentially what he did, I mean, as best as, as I can tell, uh, and, and maybe we're a little snarky about this in the paper, but I mean, as best as I could tell, it's like he was he finished his book, Nudge, and thought, hey, Nudge is a pretty good idea for the whole administrative state. I'm going to... 
I'm going to issue a short memo and explain to agencies that they really ought to read my book, Nudge, uh, and make sure that uh, they think carefully about default rules and think carefully about, uh, you know, uh, paternalism in a particular way, or whatever he, whatever his tagline is for the kind of paternalism he he believes in, a libertarian paternalism, um, and uh, and 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 he promulgated this memo, which, as far as I could tell, wasn't subject to real notice and comment. And and now that turns out to be the law of the administrative state. Well, right? that's the uh, question, isn't it? Under was it, was it? I mean, was it an articulation of you know were they guidelines and best practices, and so it was information that was in you know intended to kind of uh, nudge agencies, you know, a, kind of a secondary nudge, or was it uh, the articulation of the principles that OIRA would in fact use to review regulations and then decide whether to issue return letters. And what would be evidence of one of those or the other being the case? Like what would you what would what are the sorts of things cuz I can imagine evidence that makes it very easy to conclude that it is the second uh option, right? That it is a set of principles that are used and by everybody who's engaged in the process. So if you see if you start to see memoranda in a rulemaking proceeding that's getting reviewed by OIRA go back and forth between the agency and OIRA where they're arguing about their compliance with that memorandum. Like, well, we did a good job under Sunstein Memorandum Alpha because I can show you X, Y, and Z. And then OIRA says, no, you didn't do such a good job because there's not only Sunstein Memorandum Alpha, there's Sunstein Memorandum Beta, and you need to do these other things. And then there's an OMB circular as well, and then there's the executive order as well. And so if they start to argue about it as if it is a governing principle, that would be a really easy sort of prepackaged set of evidence. But yeah, in the absence uh, I mean, of that, although, although, I, I, I mean, easy, it would, I, I guess it, it would be a smoking gun, but it's quite difficult to find uh, such smoking guns in well, the operations of the administrative state. I mean, you're, it, we did but not I was making, I was making a slightly different point, which is that not, not that it, the smoking guns would exist, but be hard to find, but rather that they probably wouldn't exist. So, well, I'm wondering what the evidence would be given that I doubt that such smoking guns would exist. There's all sorts of reasons not to have them. Like you yeah. do it on the phone, there's an informality, which which in a way calls into question a, a, a predicate of the project, right? Is to the degree that people resist uh, reducing things to writings, are they engaged in something that you would want to call ex-prudence? But putting that aside... No, I mean, these are... These are uh Great questions. I mean, I, I think, I mean, the paper is not um, empirical on that point. That is, I, we don't actually, uh, we're not able to find agency heads saying, oh, shit, we were going to like, you put out a, a certain kind of disclosure and we thought that was going to comply. And then we read the Sunstein memo and started realizing we now have to do it slightly differently because we know Sunstein has a different preference on how to do disclosure. So that would be neat evidence. We obviously, I mean, we don't, I'm not sure, we we didn't look for it. So uh, maybe it exists. um, And and perhaps that would have been a better thing to do. And and actually, we still have time. So maybe maybe what you've (laughs) given me is a little project to do before the paper actually comes out. I mean, I don't don't think it's expected to come out in Georgetown until um, January of 2015. So I I mean, I, uh, maybe I, maybe we'll try to plug, plug that gap. But I, but I think it stands to reason that, if the administrator of OIRA uh, puts out a memo saying you need to comply, you know, to the extent permitted by law with this uh, with this set of parameters and best practices, that becomes a starting point for the conversation. So if any agency is going to be doing 
disclosure, it better be, quote, smart disclosure, uh, because OIRA is not going to let it get through. Um, and that's what well, Sunstein is pre-committed on that. Um, now, I mean, there are a bunch of remaining questions for regal prudence that uh, that that the paper tries to say something about. Well, for example, does Shalansky now have to abide by this? Right. I mean, the, the, these memoranda were not uh, repealed. Right. So now the next OIRA administrator, is he obliged to follow as a matter of precedent, the smart disclosure memorandum? Now, I don't particularly like the way Sunstein went about uh, promulgating these memoranda, I th- I, my my own view is that that ought to have been subject to a, a much more thorough uh, 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 notice and comment. I mean, when 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 OMB decided to put out a circular about how uh, uh, this is a famous circular called A four circular about how uh, cost benefit analysis ought to proceed. Um, you know, it was subject to a substantial conversation within the administrative state among uh, agency heads. Uh, of, I believe, actually, Cass Sunstein was uh, was part of the peer review for that process. But um, the, the the bottom line is that that there was a, a much more elaborate process putting this kind of circular in place. Now, that circular, I think, Shalansky doesn't view himself as able to just change a four willy nilly. Right, but can he change Sunstein's memo? Maybe because it wasn't subject to you know the same kind of process. And so there you have the process substance interaction that we we talked about a little bit um, earlier with the uh, uh, with the legislature. And we you know so the idea of the paper is to bring these kinds of questions into the like you know really these holes in the administrative state that we haven't spent enough time. And, and I think, you really thinking. puts a lot of pressure on the word "should" in your question because um, you know the, at one level there's a question of what is legitimate conduct on the part of the of OIRA and, and the White House in its role in producing this legal information. There's another question about what it's, um, what is a wise use of its power. Um, so I think, I'm not sure if the same circular you're referring to is the, you know, when, when the Obama administration came in and they, they said, we're thinking about redoing 12866, which is the executive order that establishes uh, a wire review and cost benefit analysis. You know, it's the kind of the fundamental um, uh, executive order. Uh, they, they asked for comments from the you know, yep. community at large. And there were some, you know, I, I use this in my leg reg class, some of the responses from uh, law profs and lawyers and, and others uh, to how this process should be revised um, or continued. Um, but if, uh, as you say, if, if every time a new administrator of OIRA comes in or a new head of OMB, uh, and the, um, some of these guidelines of the kind that Sunstein put out are completely revised to 180, the question is not just, is that kind of legitimate in an abstract philosophical sense, or even in an institutional jurisprudential sense, but is it wise for the White House? Because you might imagine that over time, if there are all of these 180s, agencies may simply start refusing to comply. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a limit, and you uh, referred to this uh, earlier um, obliquely, but referred to it, that the this is a small office relative to the size of the entire administrative state. And by that, we mean all the agencies and commissions and the various entities, which, you know, actually uh, uh, kind of plow through both cases and rulemaking on, for the entire federal government. That's a huge, sprawling uh, bureaucracy. Uh, their ability to review all of these rules to monitor agencies is limited, as is Congress's. Um, so there may be kind of an abstract jurisprudential limit that we find in philosophy or in you know technocratic 
um, uh, um, uh, you know, desiderata uh, that we think should constrain what, you know, a Sunstein or, uh, should do in that role. But we might, might also f- just find kind of prudential that, that the White House would be unwise uh, not, to, uh, um, not to adhere to some principle of stare decisis here. Um, yeah, just, well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, that – well, I, I would just say – I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I, I would just, I guess, um, highlight or observe that the, the kind of self-same considerations apply you know, at, the, at the judicial level as well. I mean, we, we, we think it is sound for courts to stand by decisions that have already been made in part because there are kind of philosophical reasons for it but also in part for prudential reasons. Um, and I, and I, it's, and it seems to me that that one can say very similar things about what's going on um, at OIRA. I mean, I, I recognize this is quite counterintuitive. It, it is surely the case that there is greater room for flexibility and executive discretion and politics, small p, um, at OIRA. I mean, it's just uh, that that stands to reason. In fact, we designed the system to allow for that kind of. Uh, in infiltration of politics in our policymaking, and 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 I don't think anything in the paper is, seeks to uh, remove completely um, that dimension. But that said, right, there are rule of law concerns, and as you say, legitimacy concerns about yeah. you know, if the if if that if OIRA wants to be uh, heated, it can't just you know every year make a new decision about what counts as smart disclosure. Um, and and I and I think I mean in some measure I think process in in the kind of qu- what we call quasi regulatory domain right when it is that the uh, OIRA is promulgating some memo about how all agencies in the entire federal government need to think about their work right so circular A four is an example this was the this was the guidance about what counts as good regulatory analysis for the entire administrative state, it subjects its draft to public comment, interagency review, and peer review. Um, you know, is, is that what happened when Sunstein is saying we ought to have smart disclosure? Now, I, I don't think so, and I think that's a problem, and I think that part of what we're highlighting is that they, they can do a little bit better. It doesn't mean there isn't flexibility. It just means that they, they could do a little bit better. Ethan, let me ask you about just one more thing, because uh, you know I, I know you need to get back to your very important work. Of, and uh, I have about you? I have about six questions I have not been asking. So <sighs> if we get your one, I get at least one myself. Is that fair, Ethan? One, 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 that, and one. That's totally fine. Whatever you want. I mean, as long as I get to lunch at noon, I'm you know I'm basically going to be a happy kid. Okay. Well, here, here's my my question. I want to ask about how we could do this differently, and I'll give you kind of the. If it's not exactly the polar opposite, but it is a, a very different framework in which the kind of thing OIRA does could could occur. And I want to just set aside like separation of powers issues and whether the president has inherent authority to do what OIRA is doing and whether it would be an intrusion into that authority if Congress did something. But what if uh, Congress either amended the APA or established a new agency? Right, which is the agency for the coordination of agencies, or the agency for the coordination of regulations, or just amended the APA to kind of give a statutory role to what's going on in OIRA, um, that gave Congress some authority, but also created some procedures that govern the centralizing role. You know, it's a, it would be a statutory uh, uh, amendment or a new statute, which you know, which conferred. 
if not conferred, at least recognized and 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 did something about the president's you know, uh, more centralizing authority over the agencies, but maybe put in place some rules. Is that something that you'd be in favor of? Uh, if, or is there some value in the really informal, hands-off, uh, from Congress's point of view, um, uh, position with respect to OIRA? Is there some value in, in kind of seat of the pants, you know, a, a, the new, a new Sunstein comes in and wants to do something completely different? Is there some value in that? Or or is there a role for... Um, a more formal, maybe even written constitution of this centralized, uh, uh, this agency for the centralization of, of agency rules? Um, I mean, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think it's out of the uh, scope of the paper. So, I, I mean, I speak only for uh, for myself, certainly, and not for uh, Nestor, who has his own. I mean, N- Nestor has more kind of hands-on personal experience with OIRA when he worked at the uh, Housing and Urban Development Department. He... Um, you know, he had kind of daily contact with OIRA, so he his impressions, uh, and maybe they are reflected also in the in the paper's tone about OIRA, which is definitely skeptical. Um, and your question is slightly different; it's more about you know, suppose Congress took the reins here and actually tried to create a a framework statute like the APA for regulatory review, right? Um, you know, I, I think that it, it, it kind of the, the devil's in the details. I don't know how they would do it. I mean, it stands to reason that they would be uh, probably quite um, deferential to the president in, in the end of uh, because whatever uh, uh, law they would pass would be subject to presidential veto. Um, and so it's right. It's a, it's probably going to be constrained in some measure by uh, by the anticipation of a veto. And so I, I don't know exactly. I mean, most likely what you would see is Congress passing the buck, uh, right, uh, and have a very very vaguely worded uh, st- statute, all of which is to be filled yeah, in. Yeah, what I had in mind uh, though is that maybe that Congress might have some success with the information forcing part of it. You know, requirements for transparency and keeping memos on file and posting them on the website. Well, does, it need to yeah. the, does it need to amend the APA? I mean, it's already one sense in which Congress has powerfully ratified this over the last 35 years is that it's paying for it. I mean, the executive office of the president is part of the budget, is it not? Mm. So they're paying for it. And that means they're asking questions about what they're paying for year in and year out. So if they thought OIRA was engaged in this sort of massive act of uh, unbridled lawlessness. I have, wouldn't they? They find a way to call it into question, wouldn't they? Uh, it. I mean, it's tough, right? The, the budget is a pretty complicated uh, negotiation, and uh, and and OIRA is within OMB. So, what, are you going to defund OMB? Is that, I mean, it's, I, I don't. Or defund are, OIRA? I, if, I, if, the la- if the last several years have taught me anything, it's that members of con- now whether or not it it winds up attracting any support from other members of Congress, members of Congress have no trouble barking about defunding stuff as a way uh, to crystallize an issue about to, to, to try to crystallize public concern about the way in which laws are getting carried out. Yeah. I, well, so this is by way of saying, I guess you're, you're now making a counter argument against your prior argument that uh, Congress should get in, uh, get into the action and, and regulate OIRA, but they may be perfectly fine with what's going on there. I mean, look, a lot of this is just shielded from their view. I mean, they're more than happy, it seems, to allow agencies to be just off doing their own thing right, with very vaguely worded statutes so that they're not responsible for it. Right? So this is just another way in which the president takes 
control away, and then Congress has a kind of accountability occlusion mechanism. Right. Um, and, and OIRIS serves that function very well for them as well. I could say, look, I don't know, the president's doing something in his office. You have a problem, deal with the president. You, you know, don't take this out on Congress. So they have a complicated um, set of interactions. I think that if Congress, aggra- I mean, to go back to your original question, if Congress sort of wrote a framework statute for how OIRIS should function and took um, took its lead even from the executive order that that actually controls what uh, what what OIRA does now. I mean, again, putting aside separation of powers concerns, um, you know, they what they may end up doing uh, is creating a kind of mechanism of judicial review, right? So, so executive orders do not create um, right, causes of action. Uh, if you if the stat if a statute kind of controlled the processes by which OIRA had to operate. Right, you might start seeing lawsuits, and then you might start seeing judges getting involved. No, I mean, it really just kind of changed the dynamic altogether. And then your question to me is something like, is that desirable? Uh, and I don't know what the answer to that is. I, mean, I, just, uh, I just don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not somebody who believes that judicial review is, is obviously the answer to all kinds of questions. I could say that it would no longer be a great case study for regal prudence because what you would then start seeing is, uh, an agency operating in anticipation of the way judges would respond, and that is the core domain of administrative law. And, and I'm not suggesting that this paper is, you know, so the, the most original paper of all time. But it, what we're trying—it's kind of kernel of originality. It seems to me is its focus on domains of administrative action that are not so much immune from judicial review, but just kind of are not subject to regularized judicial review so that what a court thinks about what it ought to be doing, it, right, or not, it, it, that's not the marching order. The marching and, order and the is, actors aren't And the actors aren't thinking ab- about what courts are likely to do. Right. 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 All right. And that's, and so I, I think that that's, you know, so it would end up being a, a really just not a great case study, whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess some oversight in what OIRA is doing is, is part of the core of what this paper is suggesting. And oversight may be the wrong word because I don't mean judicial oversight. I mean, kind of certain kinds of processes uh, that constrain what you can do and, and, and allow the law-like stuff that's going on within it to be subjected to the values that we think legal institutions are supposed to be subject to. Not okay, necessarily so, by courts. All right. So now it's now it's Christian got his question. Now it's my turn. Um, <laughs> so uh, and this is uh, along taking a very different, uh, more of a history of ideas kind of thing. So um, s- several times as I was reading the paper, um, I, I had sort of egghead Tourette's and I was barking the name Lon Fuller. Yeah. And then finally, it's on page 54. And I was very gratified that it was I was no longer reading an act of crypto Fullerian. Uh, uh, work. I was, I was reading actual Fuller work. Um, but, uh, but the, the reason that that's not just, uh, sort of footnote fodder, um, is I think there's an idea in Fuller's morality of law that's really important, uh, and that is missing from the paper. Uh, and that's the norm of reciprocity between the, the rulers and the ruled, uh, and the, and the way that that pulls together a great deal of what's in his framework for the principles that make that that uh, demonstrate laws inner morality so I'd be curious sort of in a next paper or in even in this paper to 
to try to weave in um, these what where you get when you look at reciprocity between the ruler and the ruled in thinking through these issues about is this law or not uh and then the the the, the sort of last bit of fuller um because uh, I'm a huge fuller fan um is maybe maybe instead of regal prudence it should be rex prudence and then mm-hmm. you're then you're nodding to king rex as well well, we're definitely uh, nodding to King Rex. And I think it's kind of, I mean, what we highlight at the end there, something that has been kind of surprising that in light of how much uh, Fuller's uh, system is is really about Rex, a king, a, a, a an executive, right? Uh, that the articulation of the principles over time, I mean, and, and I, we sort of blame Dworkin for this, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't, we're not, that's not a serious kind of claim about the history of ideas. It's a kind of a, a hypo, hypothesis about where it went off track that these principles didn't really penetrate to the core of jurisprudence for a long time. And when you look at uh, these compendia of the philosophy of law, you look at a compendium of jurisprudence uh, and legal philosophy, say, like from Scott uh, Shapiro and Jules Coleman. I mean, there's no, there's a chapter on everything under the sun but the administrative state and regulation. And, and we find that a little perplexing. Um, and I think it's because somehow the the story of Fuller got pushed into a story about what's going on in courts because that's how we saw law. But I but it's almost surely the case that these Fullerian principles ought to be applying to to Rex and then you know, I mean I, the reason Rex doesn't work quite well for you know the the standard democracy is that it's not you know this we don't really want to think of the executive as king and it, that's maybe too much of a <laughs> uh, a kind of a, 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 a too, too too vermilion or something you know it's it, right. too focused on black holes and what you know executive discretion uh, that can, that is unchallenged and and and, and untethered and um, and monarchic, and and I and I think that you know it's not the, that's not the vibe, which goes back to your, the, where, where you started, which is this question about reciprocity um, between ruler and ruled. And as as you may or may not know, I, I take this up in a lot of my other work. I, the entire kind of fiduciary theory of of public authority requires this kind of constant deliberative, what, what I call in, in other work, deliberative engagement, and deliberative engagement requires. Um, uh, discussing and and taking account of the preferences and interests of beneficiaries to public authority um, brought into this discussion, uh, and I haven't fully thought this out because my fiduciary theory hasn't yet. Uh, actually, the, the Evan Criddle, who's written a lot about the fiduciary theory in the administrative state, um, focuses a lot on judicial review. I mean, and, and, but the, the core insight there is that members of the executive branch are fiduciaries for their their wards, uh, so for the, for the people, um, and and how to give effect to reciprocity as between the ruler and the ruled is is critical component of what's supposed to be going on within the administrative process. And indeed, uh, you know, deliberative engagement may just be a fancy word for notice and comment. Right, so this takes us back to uh, very much the, the concerns about transparency and engagement, uh, especially in quasi-regulation. I mean, in quasi-adjudication, it's different. There, 
the, the you know so long as the parties are re- kind of represented in some way we think that the decision maker has the ability to make a determination as to what's fair uh, with the, the, among the disputants but um but with respect to regulation right this, this goes back to a lot of what we were discussing about memoranda that just get promulgated but without uh, kind of careful notice and comment and that's troublesome and and maybe the way to articulate it is through that principle of reciprocity that you were alluding to uh we don't in the paper but it's something definitely for me to to, to spend so, more time thinking about so ethan i'm gonna i'm gonna leave you with this parting gift which you, you this is free <laughs> this, is, this is free it's, it's funny i i yeah okay go ahead I, so so i've got I've, I've got your title i've got the title for you uh Rex Sunstein question mark. Mm, that's the title <laughs> of the paper. You know, it, it, you no, no colons, none of that nonsense. Just Rex Sunstein question mark. I think it captures everything. Um, interesting. Well, I'll have to think about that. I, I that sounds like an ad hominem attack. And, uh, <laughs> you think? And one of the thi- one of the things my tenure no, reviewers said like uh, was to not do that. So I don't. Know, <laughs> although now I have tenure, so uh, you know, all bets are off. Um, no, no, but this is not an attack on Sunstein because it's all about the secondary rules. It's about how we should treat Sunstein's memoranda, right? It's should he be should he in that role? Of course, you know it, yes, he's no yes. longer in that role. But should the person in that role be treated like Rex? Is that is that what they are? They advisors, uh, and if they are just advisors to the agency, uh, um, then what are the rules which govern that advice? I, you know. It, it, yeah. this, look, this is in jest. But you know what? No, it's it's you know I should have. That would be an excellent uh, forum essay for the Harvard Law Review forum, which I, which would be a response to uh, his kind of myths and realities piece. But uh, I don't know if they're still going to accept that. Is a, that's a great that's a great response to um, to his paper in the, in the Harvard Law Review. But uh, I'll take that under advisement. And yeah. I appreciate and I appreciate the gift and also yeah, no uh, charge, you, no charge, and, all, and also your engagement on the on the paper. It's really great to have engaged readers, and and as you know, in our profession, um, it's you don't always get that. So it's it's real. I have a lot of gratitude to you guys for for taking it seriously. It's a, ter- it's a terrific paper. People really, if you're if people are interested in this topic at all, they really should read it. It's and both because it's great on it in, in itself, but it's also a great pointer to lots of other really engaging things no, it makes progress and you know there are too few papers that really make progress and you know maybe i'm predisposed to think it makes progress because it's 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 marching along a line that i too am trying to march along and and so it feels you know it feels progressive in that sense but i i certainly enjoyed reading it and and loved chatting with you ethan and, yeah, um, and I, I think we can do a thousand more episodes about the thousand different things that you write about um uh, but this was, this was a great one to start with so thanks, thanks. a bunch Thanks Thanks. so much, guys. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye.